Look, the journey for every person is very different. I don't know what it's going to look like for you. The one thing I know for sure is that at some point it's going to get hard. And here's what I can tell you. I am 100% by your side. The results are so worth it. And I've structured the way that we work together so that when things get hard, you can lean in as opposed to jump ship and lose all the time, the effort, the money that you have invested in this process to date. So I think there's actually a business structure that needs to be considered as well so that it actually aligns and supports and recognizes the fact that change is hard and that for the client to experience success, they have to make that change. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. Welcome, everybody. It's another week of Impact, and I'm totally here for it. Obvious. That was actually not even a good... I thought I was going to go somewhere with joke, and it's not... It's all all just falling. It's all just falling flat, and I am... I'm just going to resist the temptation to hit stop and start this process again. I am here for it. Uh, I'm here for all the things impact. And uh, I'm really enjoying the through line of this uh, series we've got taking place right now, which is affectionately known as things you need to know. And I'm going through a variety of different uh, topics and sentiments and ideas and really biasly pulling the things that are most important to me uh, in my world right now. So we've got some really great episodes that are coming up in the next few weeks. And I'm really excited about the one that you're about to have access to today. My guest today, her name is Margaret Floyd Berry. And I was like, we go back a long way. We realized we went to the same high school, not at the same time, but we've had the opportunity to cross paths in particular over the last few years. And I've just been so impressed and excited by the work that Margaret is putting out into the world. She's a functional nutritionist, a writer, a real food advocate. She runs a business called Restorative Wellness Solutions, which is a two-year comprehensive functional nutrition certification program for qualified health practitioners. She also has her own uh, nutrition business called the Eat Naked Kitchen. And the reason I asked Margaret to come on was not necessarily to talk about food or her program for practitioners. Both of those two businesses and the work she does is amazing. But because in each of those arenas of influence in her life, she has to do one thing over and over again with her clients, and that is get them to do hard things. And Margaret and I were having this conversation before we hit go on this particular episode, and it really was about our relationship with challenge and hard things in the world these days notwithstanding the fact that we have collectively moved through a challenging two years, that they have been hard on us. That is a different process than actively choosing hard things in our life. Hard is an inevitable part of the human experience. But who are these crazy individuals who choose to do it? Who are these people who choose to eat gluten-free? or throw themselves into an ice bath, or run a marathon. Well, they're actually the two people hanging out in this podcast today. And and what we are talking about, and what we are dissecting, are two sides of the doing hard thing coin. We're talking about how, as business owners, we get our clients to do hard things, to hang on when the going is not good, to move them through the rough patch. And we also talk about, as individuals, how we are selective in engaging in hard things in our own life, how we enable those to contribute to our state of growth. This episode is all about how to do hard stuff, when it is the right choice, when it is the time where we need to back off, and you are going to love it. Not just the subject matter at hand, but my amazing, incredible guest, Margaret Floyd Berry. I'm excited for you to hear from her now. Margaret Floyd Berry, welcome to Impact. Thank you. So great to be here. 
Delighted to have you. I hesitated again. As you know, we just transitioned from the anthropology podcast to calling it impact. And every time my brain thought, gosh, that pathway is so wired to say the anthropology podcast, but welcome to impact. I'm excited for the conversation uh, that we are going to have today. We're going to talk about doing hard things. We're going to talk about doing hard things in business, in life, and all of the above. And before we jump into that conversation, I'm wondering if you can share, please, with my audience, your incredible story and background. Should I start by the fact that we went to the same high school? <laughs> oh, yeah, we should. We should start with that. I think that, I don't. How did we figure that out? Like, how did that actually happen? You know, it might have been James. I think you and James talked about it because he knew you were from Ottawa. And then he was just being married to a Canadian. He's like, well, this is what happens when you're married to a Canadian. You ask. It's true. Do you know the other Canadian that I know? And it it turned out that we went to the same high school, not at the same time. So we only got to meet each other fairly recently when the last couple of years. And I just, I would actually, before you tell your story, I would really like all of my non-Canadian listeners to know that Canada is not actually that small. Like that is, (laughs) that is not a common occurrence. You can't ask other Canadians if they know so-and-so because they're going to say no. Like we're a bona fide country up here. You are, and we are, and it is. <laughs> and it's really funny because it. But I find that these moments do happen, and then it completely confirms all the stereotypes. So, a hundred percent. Well, you know where to start in terms of the story. What I'll say. So, I'm I'm a functional nutritionist, but I certainly wasn't always a functional nutritionist, and. I actually was in the business world when I lived up in Canada and had my first really profound experience with the power of healing with food when I was in my mid-20s, living in Vancouver, high-powered life, career was on fire, and I had raging eczema head to toe. And anyone who's had eczema knows it is just this like the persistent itch, the like drive you out of your mind itch. And I, you know, was being managing it with cortisone creams and all these different things and eating a pretty horrific diet, living a lifestyle where I was not taking care of myself. I was just driving myself into the ground. And here was this external manifestation of it. And there was a day when my um, my business partner at the time actually was like, you know, have you ever considered dealing with this naturally? And I was like, naturally? What does that even mean? And she sent me to her doctor, who was a naturopath. I'd never heard of such a thing. I had no idea. I really did it to humor her. I didn't think this was actually going to help. And I remember going in joking, oh, she's going to take away all my favorite food groups, wine and coffee and chocolate and pasta. And oh, if it had only ended there. And (laughs) we did all this testing and she put me on this really weird diet, a lot of supplements. I cried because I thought this was the rest of my life. I had to choose between eating this crazy diet and taking lots of supplements or, or the itch. But let me tell you what, I did what she asked me to do. And three weeks later, that eczema was gone and it has never come back. I was going to say that's crazy, but I'm going to actually say that's what happens. That is what happens. And now I know this, right? But at the time, this was like, what? Especially because, you know, eating something and the connection between that and like my skin, the two things couldn't seem more separate and disconnected or unconnected in my mind at that time. And so fast forward a few years, it took me a little bit to realize that I could actually do this as a profession. I loved food, love food. And the idea of using food as a tool to get well was like mind blowing for me. And so that is what I decided to do. I changed my careers when I was in my early 30s, went back to school and um, have really never looked back. I love to help people live fuller. My mission has always been, even when I was in corporate America, living in Vancouver, has always been that I want to, as a result of my interactions with whoever it is, I want to support and inspire them to live fuller and healthier lives than they even thought possible. And I feel so blessed that I now get to do that in a really profound way, whether it's working with my clients in my private practice, or whether it's training other practitioners on how to do this with their clients, but really getting people to live bigger and more fully and more healthfully. I mean, most people have such a low standard. I didn't, I mean, I thought the skin was the the big thing at the time because you could see it, but there was other stuff going on as well. I didn't even know what healthy felt like. People don't know what it feels like. I'm so glad you said that. They don't. None, I mean, most people don't. It's interesting. I've observed this with a few people over the course of the last year. And that is, I, I really do believe there is a functional illiteracy in the general population with respect to their health. They don't know what it feels like to be healthy. And they don't even have the language to describe a state of health. Like being on on medication and, and 
bloated and having low energy, like, I don't think we know what it is. I I certainly didn't. I mean, I had this experience with my skin, but I didn't think it was in any way unusual that after most meals, I had to lie down in the fetal position because I had such bad gut pain. Like to me, that was actually normal. It took me going to nutrition school and filling out a symptom burden questionnaire. And it was horrible. And taking it to my instructor and saying like, what's going on here? I'm so healthy. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I had migraines. I would track my bottle of Advil. Like I literally knew at all times how many feet away from me was this bottle of Advil because you never knew when a migraine would hit. But I thought of myself as totally healthy. It did not even dawn on me or that I could go an afternoon um, and not need chocolate and caffeine to get through the day without needing a nap or just passing out at my desk. Until you've felt it. Uh, tragically, we have normalized feeling incredibly subpar. We have a hundred percent done that. It's this massive disservice. And you know, as you were as you were talking about your story, I like literally drew this line and I wrote down two lines, and they're just super close together in this arrow. And the whole idea in my brain as I was doing this was that the difference between unhealthy and healthy is actually even not that far away. No, and that I think is the saddest part. It's like there's this, there's just this. Uh, boundary or this border between the two. And I, I think what bridges it, people get, uh, they build it up in their mind, like you described. They're like, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, people would tell me this every day in my office, they'd come in. And I was like, what took you so long? Like you're in a colitis right. flare. How did it take right. you so long to come in my office? And they're like, well, honestly, I just, I didn't want you to take away my gluten mm-hmm. or my coffee or right. my dairy. And I knew you were going to touch those three things. So I've, I've basically been bleeding out my bum for the last eight months because that was better than what you were going to do. And then I turn to them, I go, I'm not going to take any of those things away from you right now. Oh. And there was just this, this moment we build up in our head that it's just going to yeah. be this, could you imagine living without bread? I'm like, could you imagine living without like bloody diarrhea all day long? Like, right. I, I don't, I, I don't understand. Why we aren't just willing to do that. Why we aren't willing to do the hard thing, which is how we opened this. We're yes. going talk about, to talk about doing hard things. So before we like create a framework for that for people, I guess my question for you is, like, are you still taking a million supplements and eating a highly restrictive diet? Like, are, do you still have to do that? Like, what was the evolution from this, oh my gosh, moment to... To what you what you get to do now? That was more than one question. Well, so do I still take a million supplements? I still take a lot of supplements, but for totally different like, reasons. That was a terrible <laughs> question because we both probably take a million. Notwithstanding yeah. that we choose to take a million supplements. Ch- no, I choose point. to take them and they're all about optimization and I'm super well informed about them. So yeah, that practice stayed, although there's many years where I didn't. But my diet, it's nowhere near as restrictive as what it was. You know, I mean, there's, I think, I don't know if the practitioner forgot to say this or if I just didn't hear it, which is far more likely, but I really went home thinking this is the rest of my life. I mean, it got weird for, you know, sort of the heavy lifting stage lasted for about three months. And then we started reintroducing things. And, you know, at this stage, I won't say I eat a normal sort of quote unquote standard American diet because I don't, but I eat delicious real food. There's no deprivation in my life. I'm a total foodie. I love to eat. I get incredible pleasure from eating. I don't feel like I make any kind of sacrifices. Do I eat gluten? No. That's probably my only like hard life. Well, I mean, I don't eat a lot of processed foods, but I don't eat like in terms of a food group. I don't eat gluten. And this conversation today is a very different conversation, gluten-free. If we were talking about this 15 years ago or, you know, 20 some years ago when I had that conversation, I mean, totally. taking out gluten at that point was like, that was a project because you were eating cardboard if you wanted to eat anything that tasted even try to pretend to be like a, an alternative. It is easy to be gluten-free. Big statement. Please explain. It is hard to wrap your head around it. And then once you've wrapped your head around it, it's actually easy. We build it up on our mind. And I, w- I will say I went, I went to Italy two weeks ago. I've been gluten-free for 17 years since I had a similar experience to you, except for when I was in Paris on my honeymoon, where I just... You want the baguette my Canadian podcasting friend? consumed wheat and gluten and was fu- and was fine and i was there only for four days and when i went back to italy just recently for two weeks i was like i'm in europe i am impenetrable and i was for eight days and then day nine we just took a turn for the worst i was traveling with my mom i looked at her i'm like and we're done with the gluten <laughs> living um but you know what's so interesting 
is a, a lot of my patients here who were resistant to removing gluten from their diet, making that shift. They were my Italian patients. They're like, you don't understand. This is my heritage. Like we can do this. There is more celiac per capita in Italy than just about any other country in the world. And everywhere I went in Italy, they had gluten-free pasta and gluten-free, gluten-free pizza. Like it's, it's a no-brainer there. Totally. It's a no-brainer. It's yeah. a no-brainer. They're like, I am not giving up my carbs. So we're figuring out uh, the gluten-free. And I think the truth is when things are hard, there is always a way to have a softer landing. Always. Let's start to break this down because I know one of the things you, you like to jam out about is how do we actually get people to do hard things? Because for our respective careers, everything is predicated on us actually actually convincing people to do at least one heavy lift before they realize it's not as difficult as it is. What's your process for getting people to, to do hard stuff? So there's multiple steps to it. Step one is getting, you talked about, you know, your client coming into you with colitis and you're like, well, what about life not bleeding out your bum? Like, can you imagine what that looks like? And so before getting into the hard things, one of the things I really like to do with people is really anchor them into what's possible. Like what's on the other side of that hard thing? Because for your client, I'm going to make some guesses here. Yes, there would be the like, wow, would it be nice to not have this horrible, probably traumatic experience every time she goes to the bathroom or he goes to the bathroom, but also, you know, they're tracking bathrooms. I've had clients who can't leave their house before noon because they don't know where the nearest bathroom is and they don't want to have an accident. So their entire life is being disrupted by this health challenge. And so step one is to get really clear on what life looks like on the other side of the hard thing, not just with the most obvious problem solved, right? The obvious problem is the colitis dealt with, right? In remission, but it's the so that, so that they get their life back so they can leave the house freely. So they don't, aren't tracking the closest bathroom for me. Not having to worry about migraines means that I don't actually, I can't tell you right now where the closest bottle of Advil is to me. And that is really liberating because that's not something that I want to be using up brain cells tracking, right? That means that I can be thinking about our conversation here and other like much more productive things. So step one is always really anchoring into the other side of the problem and the impact of what that other side looks like. Like what is the ripple effect of that in your life? And not even just with you, but your partner, your spouse, your kids, your friends, like what is the ripple effect of having this solved? The next thing is to actually be really straight up that it is going to be hard. And that might sound really counterintuitive, but I have had experiences with people who've gone, come in and they've wanted it to be really easy. Uh, you know, they just want to do the quick things, Right. And if I haven't had the really direct conversation of like, you know what, this is going to be hard at certain points, then they fail because the second it gets hard, they feel like either they're failing or they're doing it wrong or it's not working and they just disqualify themselves. They pull themselves out of the process. And so having that straight up honest conversation has been really helpful. And alongside that, letting them know that they're never alone in those moments, right? Like, it's going to be hard. And guess what? My job is to be here at your side to troubleshoot, to cheerlead. We got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? To pep talk, to be the shoulder, to do all the things that you need in order to do this hard thing and get that result that is ultimately why we're here. And I feel like that that sort of pre-qualification, because all of those things happen long before you even figured out what the hard thing's going to be. Because in our line of work, it's, it's different for every individual we work with. I mean, there's going to be dietary changes. There's going to be some supplements, going to be some tests. You might have to collect your poo. You know, there's going to be some, some things that you, you need to do. And I will always say to people, look, the journey for every person is very different. I don't know what it's going to look like for you. The one thing... I know for sure is that at some point it's going to get hard. And here's what I can tell you. I am 100% by your side. The results are so worth it. And I've structured the way that we work together so that when things get hard, you can lean in as opposed to 
jump ship and lose all the time, the effort, the money that you have invested in this process to date. So I think there's actually a business structure that needs to be considered as well so that it actually aligns and supports and recognizes the fact that change is hard and that for the client to experience success, they have to make that change. Do you feel triggered as someone who is charging people? I mean, we'll charge people for what we do, but like billing people when they come to you and they're like, I'm having a really hard time or I can't do it. Or I I would often find that triggering. Even now, Mm -hmm. sometimes I have to calm myself down. Mm -hmm. People who are paying me for something don't find it easy. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? I used to really struggle with that, really struggle with it. And if something was going on, you know, they reacted to a supplement or like something and it's something always happens, right? It's inevitable. I would take it so personally, like I have done this to you. Like this is somehow my fault. So much pressure on yourself. So much pressure. Well, honestly, having this conversation at the front end has been as helpful for me as it has for them because I'm just stating the facts of the healing journey, which is bumpy. It's a bumpy road. I mean, anything is a bumpy road. I mean, what's that like, you know, when a pilot takes off from city A going to city B, like it's all course corrections. That's the entire journey is course corrections. And so, of course, something as complex and intricate as the human body with all of these different inputs and factors, when we are sort of ushering someone through that healing process, it's going to be a process of course correction. And so by explicitly explaining this to the client front end, it's also reminding myself that, yeah, this is the journey. This is the process. This is just part of it. And that my role is the course corrections. I mean, most planes could fly themselves essentially, right? It's the, but the pilot's there for the course corrections. I'm pretending I know actually what happens in the cockpit. I have no idea. And I'm leaning into it like I (laughs) could fly a plane. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) I'm assuming and hoping that that's why they're there. 100% you're betting on there, Margaret. Yeah, I I have absolutely no idea how to fly fly a plane, but I'm I'm a pretty good boat driver and I can tell you it's all course correction there. It is. It's all course correction. And and it's not with anything, you know, any, I mean, there's that silly overuse saying of like anything worth doing is, I'm not going to remember what it is, but like hard, (laughs) basically. Um, (laughs) I think that's the saying. Yep. Life's hard. And uh, we're all going to have to do hard things. If Glennon Doyle hadn't taken that podcast title. I know, right? I know. We could have owned it. Do you find people are are less capable of engaging in hard things now than when you started your career? You bet. And I feel like it gets worse on almost a daily basis. Are we getting older and more intolerant? I don't know. I wanted to call out the potential bias in the in the collective room. Sorry, you were saying. Well, I think a couple of things. You know, like when some people come to me who aren't honestly suffering enough. They have a little imbalance, you know, they want to optimize or they are trying to do things preventatively, which I love the idea of preventative health. I love it. And I have very rarely seen it work. And other than the most committed person, because it's hard to do hard things anyways. Just because. Just because, because it's, we, and, and honestly, I mean, let's cut ourselves some slack here. Like the world is a hard place right now. Like, you know, there's a Being lot going hard. on. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like life, life isn't, you know, there's things going on. Right. And so do we want to like add to that? But when somebody is really struggling, there's a lot of momentum and a lot of inspiration for actually doing the hard work. There's a lot of reason to do that because they are suffering. And it's interesting. This is part of actually my pep talk at the beginning of talking with a client is I will say. I always work. So, you know, in my clinical work, we always work in packages. And the reason for working in packages is because at some point it's going to get hard. And I don't want them to jump ship at that moment. I don't want to have wasted their time and money just that when it gets hard, they bail. So I structure it such that they can lean in because they have already committed to the process. And what I will share with them as well is ironically, the time when it gets the hardest to take all the supplements and eat the weird diet is when they feel better, right? Because when they're really sick, they're motivated. They're highly motivated to make these changes. But when the the issue has resolved, this beautiful survival mechanism in our brain that erases the pain that we experienced as recently as a week or two ago, and then it's like, wait, why why am I why am I not eating that croissant? And why am I taking this fistful of supplements? Like, I feel fine. So ironically, it's that moment when things start to feel better that it actually becomes the hardest to continue doing the hard things. 
So I think having that conversation at the front end and kind of preparing for that. And then honestly, most people do have to go through that. Well, then I'm going to stop eating the diet and I'm going to stop taking the supplements and have a little bit of a flare and remind themselves, oh yeah, this is why we're doing this. But I think I think that part of the reason why it's hard to do hard things, well, actually, I think there's two, there's two different pieces to this. And this is hard things in general, not just with respect to our health. But I think on one side, we're so inundated with all the hard things in the world, like in a way that we never were. Like I think about when, you know, when we were kids, like I had no clue that what was going on. I mean, certainly not in like the day to day. Like I didn't know what all my friends were eating for lunch because they didn't have Instagram for them to take a picture of it and post it online, right? Like there's so much that I didn't know. I was able to just be in the present. Mm -hmm. And now it's like we're just overwhelmed by all of this information and all the trauma of the world just comes Mm -hmm. at us. So it's like it already feels hard just to navigate that. And then I feel like there's this compensatory mechanism where because of that, we're trying to like pad ourselves and be like, you know, be gentle, be gentle. And the being gentle can end up diluting the value of digging in and doing a a hard thing that has such merit. Because doing a hard thing isn't just about the reward. It's about like building this, this resilience in character. I run marathons for fun, which probably sounds crazy to a lot of non-runners, but like and me, <laughs> <laughs> there's a huge amount that, I mean, that's, that's sort of a lot of hard things, but the character building of being able to mm-hmm. dig in and the mm-hmm. discipline and the like recognizing like this might hurt in the short term, but I'm not actually in danger. Like those things build this internal resilience that translates to everything else in life. And that can be doing the hard thing of taking gluten out of your diet. That can be running a marathon. It can be whatever it is. But I think that when we try to pad and protect ourselves because of this, all of these things that we can't control, all of this, all of this trauma, all of these hard things that aren't actually ours to solve, then it actually, it, it prevents us from being able to lean in and do the hard things that really will benefit us. I feel like some days our hard thing budget Mm -hmm. is like 50% used up by the time we look at our phone and process Instagram notifications and CNN breaking news. We're just like, and I'm spent for the day, but none of it necessarily was yours. Yes. Part of my challenge with it is, and and, you know, we have this rule, like I grew up with the news on all the time in our house and we do not have the news on uh, in our house. And I, I, we were talking about it and I was like, it almost builds a false sense of resilience for people. They're like, oh, I've been through all of this hard stuff. Well, like, no, you've watched it. You've watched it on CNN. You've watched it on the news. But it, it wasn't, you didn't run the marathon. You just watched the marathon on, on TV. And so I talk about this with my guests a lot. And if anyone's been listening to the show for a long period of time, I'm deeply fascinated in how we build resilience in kids Yes, through a non-traumatic course. And my husband and I joke about this because we had fairly tumultuous upbringings, which led both of us to be highly resilient people. That is one thing I can rely on in myself. I'm like, I can do hard things. Like I can do hard stuff, but how do I get my kids to be able to do hard stuff without like without getting a divorce next week, which I'm not planning to do. And we, we joke about that. How do you build resilience in your kids? Like, how do you get them to do hard things? Oh, wow. This is something my husband and I talk about all the time. I've even found myself saying, like, looking at him saying, is their life too good? Like, should we create a little like, right? I mean, I know, like to your point, like I have no intentions of divorcing. And, you know, of course we want them to, you know, and, and they have experienced things that of course are really challenging them. I mean, just silly things like, you know, having to wear masks at school and navigating all this last couple of years has certainly 100%. added yeah. a ton of stress. Um, so I don't want to minimize that, but I do, I agree. How do you build resilience in your kids? I mean, well, we actually have conversations about this all the time and we like to challenge each other that sort of every season, there is a hard thing that each one of us is working on and you get to choose your hard thing. We're big believers in like picking a hard thing and then sticking with it. Even if you've decided a couple of weeks later, you don't actually like that hard thing. You know, and this can be something as seemingly insignificant as like, you know, my, my eldest daughter doesn't love sports. We've tried a number of them, you know, and 
tried the soccer team and she sort of stood at the sidelines with her arm crossed and like didn't do anything. But we still made her go to every single game and every single practice, even if she was just going to stand there. I mean, we encouraged her to do more, but it was like, no, this is your hard thing. You've committed to it. You're going to do it for this whole season. And if you never have to play soccer ever again in your life, but you have to see this through. Same thing with a cross country team that she tried again, hated it, but you know, we required her every single time to show up. I think a piece of it is creating expectations and parameters and then sticking with them, which sounds really basic, but I actually think that's, well, at least in some of the parenting around me that I see, it's actually fairly rare. It's, it's, there's a lot of like letting off the hook, like, oh, you don't like that? Okay, let's drop it then. Oh, you didn't want to do that. Well, then let, you know, oh, you don't like your dinner. I'll make you a different one. We're a lot stricter with those kinds of things. You know, even something as simple, I use the dinner example, but that's a very real thing in our house. It's like, this is dinner. We make sure that there's options within dinner. You're married to a chef. You need to give everyone that context. You do need to, but you know what? (laughs) Everyone has this idea. When I'm married to a chef, they have this idea of the kind of life and the kind of meals that I eat. Now I will say in the last few years. Don't don't shatter that idea for me. (laughs) Well, in the last few years, he really, he really does. Like it's, it's been fantastic, but there was like the first like multiple years of our marriage. I did all the cooking. He's um, very picky and not shy with his critique. So I was like, this life you think I'm living, I'm not living. I just still do all the cooking. (laughs) I just get critiqued from like a really incredible chef, which sucks. We make sure that there are options and um, we don't overtly make things that we know they're going to hate. We don't make multiple meals and we don't give them quote unquote kid food. That is actually kind of a myth, this idea of kid food. I mean, when in the history of the human species has chicken needed to be cut in the shape of a dinosaur in order for children to eat it? Like, that's a very recent... We're messing with evolution when we do that. Oh, man. We're messing with a lot of things <laughs> when we do that. Mm-hmm. I think that even building the... You know, back to the question about building resilience, it can even come in with these sort of small daily decisions and these commitments and then sticking with those commitments. And I, you know, I'm a big believer in sort of natural consequences to things and, and also modeling stuff. You know, I, I mentioned the marathon running, like my kids see me train. They see me get out there when it's pouring rain and miserably cold. And they're like, oh, do you have to run? And I'm like, I know. I, yes, I really do. Because I've committed to doing it. And they're like, but why? And inside my head, I'm going, I don't know. This was a terrible a idea. Yeah. <laughs> but, you but know, modeling, it's important. Modeling it is is super critical, and I, I I wrestled with this guilt for a little bit when my kids were younger, where I you know they'd be like, "Will you come outside and play with me?" or "Can we play a game?" and and it was just this constant like every second they were available in the house or not a daycare at school. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Okay, we've got to be doing stuff together." And then I finally was like, "Okay, this is coming at a massive expense of of modeling too," because one of the first yeah. things that I kind of never could fit in my day then was working out. And so now yeah. we've have this system where, you know, if I'm on the Peloton or I'm doing whatever, they'll bring their math homework down or they'll do whatever and they'll work through it while I'm working out. We'll do these things simultaneously. So, you know, we're making good use of our, our time together, but I'm not, I'm not dropping that piece. And the other thing I've been ruthless on for myself and my kids know I do it. They're sometimes late for school because I do it every day is I, I do an ice bath. Nice. And a meditation in it. And the kids don't come in when I'm doing it. They know what I'm, they know that I'm like in my zone and they love throwing the buckets of ice into my bath and my oldest daughter will do it with me. But this is like, I do every day I get in it. It's hard and it gets a little bit easier every day. I take two weeks off. It's hard again. And then I get back into doing it every, but every day that I'm in that, I'm in that like ice bath. It is a meditation and a reminder that I am built to do hard things. And the more hard things you do, the more resilience you build. And it is so, it's not just a cognitive exercise. It is like, it is a physical somatic experience and it is super cool. Like I, I, I talk about my ice baths all the time. Cause I'm like, if you could just, it's four minutes. Everyone has time. Everyone has time for it. I think that's genius. It's building in on a visceral level that you can do hard things and be safe right? That it can hurt, but you're not in danger. And that to hurt, but not be in danger, I feel is really important training Mm -hmm. on a, just this visceral cellular level. And, you know, biologically we're wired to, if it hurts, that means we're in danger, but that's not the world we live in. So we need to retrain to understand that discomfort does not equal 
a threat to my life. And the more you can train that, I mean, the, the beautiful thing about this is the more you can train yourself with that, it has a ripple effect. So, I mean, you and the ice bath, of course, there's the physiological benefits to that, but then that's going to help you when you get up on stage in front of a big crowd, that's going to help you with clients. That's going to help you be a better parent. Like there's so many ripple effects to doing that one hard thing that has nothing to do with just the physiological aspect of it. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. And I think it's a, I think it's a huge strategic lever that is largely untapped. Have you ever read the book by um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb? I think that's his name. I think I'm pronouncing it right. Anti-fragile. I have not. Oh, it's a fantastic. It's dense. Let me tell you, it takes a minute. So the concept of anti-fragility is that you think of what is fragile, meaning it's very breakable. Now we think, well, what's the opposite of fragile? And most people will say strong and resilient. And he would argue that that's actually not the opposite of fragility. What's the opposite of fragility is that hard things and adversity makes you stronger. Like you actually benefit from that. And he has lots of different economic models and different pieces that he, he unpacks it more from that sort of economic perspective. But really from a physical perspective, that is what's happening when you're using hormetic stressors like an ice bath or a sauna or, you know, a hard, you know, track workout or whatever it is. It's this hard thing that is actually building that where you are benefiting from the adversity as opposed to just surviving it. So I feel like this sort of how can we as humans become anti-fragile in a culture and a world where so much is so fragile. And it's, it's, I've, I actually think it's an evolutionary advantage. I think it's, you know, I think the more we can do this and train our children to do it, because I think the one thing we can guarantee for sure is that the world's not going to get easier. It's not going to get gentler. <laughs> I mean, our kids have come in at a hard time. <laughs> yeah, 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 they are. I know every generation is like, oh, it's cotton heart. I was like, mm, yeah. I grew up in like in the 80s. I feel like that was like the heyday of being being a kid. We didn't have rules. We did things. No one captured it on film. It was like the last great era of getting away with things. But it's an entirely different world for them. I'm curious, you know, in in this conversation and in the clients that you've worked with, if you see, I'm trying not to make this leading and I'm trying to turn my thought into a question, like what in, in, your, in your purview of this conversation is the relationship between perfectionism and doing hard things? And I'll, I'll give you a little context on this. And that is, we've got this cohort of people, our type A people, and they're like, give me, give me all the hard things. And I feel like there's an important intention that needs to be recognized for those individuals that sort of differentiates doing hard things to build resilience and doing hard things because there's this need to be perfect and overachieving in any given given minute. Like, where do we draw the line between these two concepts? How do we reconcile these concepts? How do we add a little bit more granularity to what we're asking people to do? That is a really good really important and really hard question. You can, you can do hard things, Margaret. I can do hard things. <laughs> I can do this. Well, I, I, I would say, so I'm just going to like call myself out here. You mm -hmm. know, I, a major learning for me very recently, if you'd asked me this question as recently as like a month or two ago, I would have had a different answer. I don't have to sort of punish myself in order to be successful. That is different from doing hard things. And I think this is kind of where you're coming to. Like there's, there's doing the list of things because this is what needs to be done, because this is what other people are doing, because this is what I think needs to happen in order for me to, to succeed and to get my, achieve my goals. And it becomes frenetic and self-perpetuating and not particularly mindful and actually can be quite destructive. Mm -hmm. And I think bringing that mindfulness piece in and being very conscious about what it is we choose as the hard thing, not just being like, it's hard, therefore I must be doing it. And therefore, oh, wasn't I'm it a hard thing, it. right? Another hard thing, another hard thing. Like how many hard things? Like, have you seen that movie Encanto? I'm sure you've got kids. You must've seen Encanto. 800 times. Right. Okay. So the sister Louisa with the heavy things, 
Mm-hmm. How many times have I watched that under pressure? I watched that. I was like, she's speaking to me. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so is it just like doing all the hard things because that's all we know how to do? Or is it very consciously curating those practices that are mindfully chosen to increase our anti-fragility and allow us to achieve our goals? And I just, I think that that line is going to be different for every individual. And I think it involves a lot of honest self-reflection and just a really deep awareness of what's actually driving our behaviors and asking ourselves, like, why is it that I'm doing? I mean, I have had many moments during this marathon training. It's very present for me because my race is on Sunday. So, I'm, I guess, sort of all I can think about. But there's been moments during this training going like, why am I doing this? You know? Right. And I have lots of good answers for that. But it's not it's not just to sort of punish myself or make, I mean, there have been times in my life where running has been just like, I just have to get out there and like, get it done, like get the workout in, get the miles in. And it's a very different energy and a very different result, honestly, in terms of running than having a very specific goal, being really mindful of the training, taking it as an opportunity to learn recovery and master the art of recovery as much as mastering the art of like getting out there and doing the hard workout. So I think just bringing that awareness, being very mindful and constantly checking in with intention, constantly and honestly, because it can be, I say honestly, because we can tell ourselves a lot of stories. So I actually also profoundly believe in having a team of people around you who can call you on your bullshit and make sure that they're keeping you honest with this stuff and, and checking in of like, is this something that you're doing because you believe you need to punish yourself in order to succeed? And maybe historically, you have punished yourself and you have succeeded. But does that mean that the punishment was what led to the success? Or is it just that those two things happen to coexist? If you had asked me two months ago, I wouldn't have been able to even articulate that. But I'm recognizing that that's such an important aspect of the conversation to be mindful, to be selective, to be self-aware of our intentions. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because I have some people who, you know, we talk about parenting and I, I love that framework and I love how you made that so personal where we, you know, we talk about parenting and we, we talk about growth and they kind of look at me like I'm, I'm out to lunch and they're like, no, I just, I just want my kids to be happy. I'm going to give them everything. I don't, I don't. I, whatever. I, I, I don't care. Um, that's not my thing. That's not my experience. That's, and that's, that's, that's always, f- that's is a fascinating perspective for me to put on the shelf and observe and watch that. And I respect the fact that that's the choice some families are making. But what was interesting as you were talking to me, one of the differentiators around leaning into a hard thing or, you know, forcing ourselves to do the hard thing is you know, is this hard thing something that is going to contribute to my personal, professional, psychic, whatever growth? Or is this just like unbridled punishment? And that, that, that to me is an interesting triage question when you have the opportunity to do something hard. Like, is this going to contribute to, to growth in any way, shape or form? And if so, I'm, I'm here to make that commitment. And if it's not something that's going to add to your growth in where you're at in your life right now, it's also okay to say no, thank you to the hard things. A hundred percent. And important to learn how to say no, thank you to those hard things and when it's appropriate to do so. And Mm -hmm. I think coming back to the parenting, helping our kids navigate that as well. Like when is it appropriate to push through the, I don't want us you know, and when is it completely appropriate to listen to the, mm, that doesn't feel right. I'm going to trust my instincts, you know, being able to navigate those subtleties, I think is really, I think it's really important. You know, it, it's interesting. One of my very dear friends, who's an incredible parent, I look at, you know, she's, she homeschools, her children are so just solid. Like they're just such good humans. And she said to me once, she's like, well, the way I look at parenting is I'm trying to raise really loving, compassionate, productive adults. Like it's not about the kids. It's about who are they going to be as an adult and sort of everything that I teach them now, how does this translate down the road when they're in their twenties, when they're in their thirties? 
And if, you know, if she jumps in and saves them all the time, does they learn how to be resourceful and take care of themselves? If they don't ever learn how to do the dishes and fold their laundry, is this going to like, how is this going to show up down the road? Mm -hmm. And so that's actually been a really big shift for me in the last few years is now starting to think of parenting less about them as my friends, my buddies. And I love hanging out with my kids, but my job isn't to hang out with my kids. My job is to turn them into like really productive, high-functioning, great members of our society as adults, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And that lens does shift things significantly because a lot of things that are easy in the moment have some pretty major consequences down the road if you think about this behavior as an adult. I value that perspective so, so much. And it's a, it's a question I, I feel like called to have to stop myself in my tracks on an ongoing basis because uh, the easy decision is not always the best uh, long-term decision for my parenting, for my health, for my business, for any or all of the above. I feel like this is a perfect place, Margaret, to transition the interview to something I call impact ingredients. And I've been joking with everyone on the last few episodes that my intention with these questions is that they were rapid fire. And the reality with these questions is that they're they're not well suited for rapid fire at all. So I'm going to throw, but I'm going to throw a few at you okay. uh, nonetheless. And the first one really is, is, I feel like a really nice transition off of the conversation we had, which is how do you cultivate courage? in your life, which is a little bit different than like doing the hard things, but like, what do you call on when you have to do something courageous in your life or your business? I feel like every week requires this decision within myself. There's that saying, what is, it's, it's feeling the fear and doing it anyways. It is honoring to me, not just feeling it, but honoring whatever feelings I have about the situation and thanking them for taking care of me and stepping in and doing it anyways. So just really building a relationship with the fear, with the, the incredible discomfort of doing something that's hard, that's outside my comfort zone, building a relationship with the feelings that come up with that and being okay with those feelings, welcoming them, recognizing that there's like a purity of intention behind them. They're not out to get me. And that I've done this many times before. And it always works out, even if it doesn't work out, because I've also had some epic failures. The, the epic failures um, turn into great stories. <laughs> well, I was going to say, actually, I love you set that up perfectly ah. because my next question was, what is your most important failure? Oh, my God. Well, the one that comes to mind has been so many, but the one that comes to mind. So I was invited to do a TED Talk at the very early stages of my career. I was terrified. <laughs> prepped and prepped and prepped and prepped and tried to like give a TED talk, right? Like I tried to be like the TED speaker and give a TED talk. It was so bad that the producers did not post it online. Like this is not me being humble and I've seen some bad TED talks. (laughs) So it's like worse than the worst TED talks you've seen was my talk. It was so bad. And I innocently emailed them up saying like, hey, I noticed all the other speakers' talks have been posted. Where's mine? (laughs) And they wrote back really politely and awkwardly saying, you know, I'm just not sure that this is reflective of your best work, but we're happy to send you a clip and see if you're comfortable with us posting it online. I've never seen that clip. I let my husband watch it. I was too busy crying. And... And he said, yeah, you don't want that out there. So that, and I think of that failure, like I think of the courage that it took to get on that stage. I can remember I was like six or eight weeks pregnant. So I just felt disgusting. I was so terrified. I was shaking from head to foot. And the funny thing to me is I was so disconnected from how horribly I was doing is that I thought they didn't want to post this video of me because I had sweaty armpits and I picked an outfit where you could actually (laughs) see the sweaty armpits. (laughs) I thought it was like a fashion faux pas. Anyways, no, it was just that I completely sucked. So, um, but I think that was one of the best experiences that has ever happened to me because it taught me a million lessons of like not trying to be somebody else, just being myself, of actually getting the proper training for things, of the worst case scenario happening. And I'm still here to tell the story. And you're still okay. yeah, Yeah, I did like the world's worst TED Talk and I'm still here. My clients get great results. Like, I mean, all the things that I do in the world that are actually more important than that TED Talk still exist. So it's, I think, an important lesson to be able to just screw up massively and recognize that you actually can, you can survive that. 
As an entrepreneur, were you born with it? God, no. No. That was rapid fire. That was good. Yeah. No? No, not at all. Not at all. Oh, well, maybe a little bit, but I don't think so. Actually, you know what? Now that you say this, now I'm thinking back to like high school <laughs> projects and I had this like- the moment rapid fire right? becomes unrapid. Un- this is now unrapid. Yeah. Well, maybe, I guess a little bit because I've always sort of found problems and figured out ways to solve them that nobody had thought. So maybe I was. I say no because I just come from a family where like the, the idea of entrepreneur, I mean, my parents were horrified. Like when I told them I wanted to run away and be a dancer, they were like, oh, thank God you're doing something normal because they're both artists and musicians. But when I mentioned them any kind of business stuff, they were like, oh God, risk. So um, yeah. So I guess I'll say a firm maybe. <laughs> I, I appreciate the, f- the firm maybe. I, I really appreciate gray and nuance. So that's, I think it's, that's more true than anything else. Last question for you. What do you want your legacy of impact to be? I really want the people that I encounter, I'll come back to my original mission. I want the people that I encounter to experience life more fully and more more healthfully than they even thought possible. Like I just want people to understand that their baseline is too low. They're selling themselves short and what is available to them in terms of their health and in terms of the life they live. As you said, it's right there. The lines are so close and the rewards of doing the hard things that really seem hard, but they're not actually that hard are so profound. I really just, I really want to, as many people as possible that I can touch to look back and say, oh my God, I had no idea it could be this good. Amazing, beautiful. If that was a TED talk, I'd be I'd be <laughs> on my feet right now. You like wrapped that so perfectly. Margaret Floyd Berry, you are up to so many amazing things in the world. We didn't even unpack all of the awesome businesses and impact that you're having in that world. Where can we send people to be able to follow along on your journey on your marathon? Well, probably the, the best starting point would be just on Instagram. Um, Margaret Floyd Barry is my personal handle. And if there's any practitioners in the crowd, Restorative Wellness Solutions is a practitioner training program that we do, teaching the clinical skills to kind of unpack people's health challenges and help use dietary changes and supplement protocols in the most strategic way possible to create transformations in people's health. And my private practice is eatnakedkitchen.com, which has loads of free resources and articles and recipes from my husband. So just tons of of resources there just to kind of get your feet wet if this stuff is of interest to you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact.